we started a gaming company in the idea, and we launched it. We built the product out, and it was basically like fantasy football. But yeah. in, so we launched it around Euro two thousand, and the game was you you pick some players, you predict scores, and then you get points. Yeah. Um, we got Roy the Rovers as we got sort of licensing for Roy the Rovers, so we were licensing for him, and then we just couldn't get any traction. We couldn't the, the internet bubble burst. Welcome to Screw It, Just Do It, brought to you by Startup You, inspiring and supporting entrepreneurs to make a full-time living doing what you love. I'm your host, Alex Chisnell, fellow entrepreneur, Virgin mentor, and founder of Startup You, the regional partner of Virgin Startup, providing startup funding, mentoring, and support. Each episode features the stories from two entrepreneurs at different stages in their journey who talk us through their successes and failures. You get to take on board all of their learnings and none of the failure. Today's podcast is brought to you by Hayes, who are the number one recruiting experts in the UK. Whether you're searching for your perfect job or looking to scale your business by building the perfect team, go to hayes.co.uk, quoting Startup You. Welcome to this week's show, where I speak to Andrew Walker, who is now on his fourth startup and has experienced the highs and lows of starting and growing software companies. His last startup, Click Tools, was bootstrapped over 14 years from three to over 50 people and was partly acquired by SurveyMonkey before being fully acquired by Calidus. Andrew is now on a new journey with his social media app, Ikulu, as well as mentoring new startups through both Virgin and Barclays. I started by asking Andrew what made him decide on a degree in computing information systems that eventually led him on his entrepreneurial software journey. Let's start up. Um, well, it started when my father, who's an accountant, bought home an Osborne computer, which was about the size of a suitcase <laughs> with a about a two and a half inch screen. And he bought it home and I just thought it was absolutely amazing. I think from that day, my love of computers and software was sort of entrenched really so it's all, all grew from there that was about 1980 1981 something like that so I was like 13 14 and I had a BBC yeah. Model B that I used to toy around with yeah so it just all grew from all grew from there really okay I was going to say to you which which PC did you have that's kind of the years of the the advent of personal computing I remember having like ZX Spectrum and then my brother had like Commodore 64 then it was like an Amstrad's yeah yeah so I literally went down the BBC route so I had a BBC Model B and then friends had Spectrums and Sinclairs yeah. and 64s and stuff but I just stuck down the down the BBC route really and um, what made you what made you want to put that degree into practice then essentially. Um, well, it's weird. When I started, because I, I mucked up my A-levels, actually, and I was originally going to do... Me a, too. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, let's, <laughs> let's not compare grades. <laughs> um, I, I was going to do accountancy at Liverpool um, because I wanted to go into IT and I wanted to do consulting to start. And the only real way into it was to go into accounting, into management consultancy. So okay. I didn't do too well in my A-levels and had started to reset. And then basically this, I went to see a careers woman and she said, oh, there's a new degree just opened up at Birmingham Poly, as it was. Oh. And it was like a business computing degree. 
And I didn't have the grades, but she said, well, they're due to start tomorrow and they've still got places. So huh, no they'll, way. they'll take anybody. Almost. The tutors. Yeah, they'll take yeah. anybody. So I went for an interview hmm. and that, that afternoon and I had a really good chat. I was explaining what I wanted to do and it seemed to fit quite well. So they said, well, you know, your grades aren't there, but if you want a place, we'll give you a place. So I I literally stopped and started the next day. And, wow. um, but it was great. It was, I did a business computing degree, so it was exactly what I wanted to do. But it was there weren't that many of them around at the time. So from there, it was just carrying on along that journey, really. And did you have any ideas when you were a kid what jobs that you'd like to do? Um, what, well, beyond being a footballer? Yeah. Um, not really. <laughs> uh, no, it was just once I got that computing thing, it was to go into management consultancy and do IT. I always wanted to get into software, mm-hmm. but there just weren't that many companies around that, that did it. So management consultancy, certainly in, in the UK mm. um, and in Birmingham where I was. So I just ended up going down the management consultancy route, route with um, a company called WS Atkins who were engineers, engineering consultancy, but did IT for central government. So I did a lot of work um, with MOD and the Department of Health, um, stuff like that before I moved into a product as such. So is that, is that what you did straight after uni then? Yeah, straight after okay. uni. Moved to London um, and did management consultancy so working on projects to implement first job was doing network support so crawling under desks plugging <laughs> cables in plugging cables out those are the days worked it was quite good i worked in the department of health when um margaret thatcher was prime minister and that was quite entertaining so especially during the ambulance strike so once the, the best story i've got is that um one night it was about half past six I'd had a really rubbishy day at work I'd, I'd, we'd had a network fault that we just couldn't fix that we was off all day and then about six o'clock quarter past six one of the guys I knew quite well rang up the, the desk and said oh Andrew I've got a problem you need to come and fix this printer and I wasn't overly keen I was the pub was open I was due to go to the <laughs> pub we always went to the pub after work and um, I said well can it wait till tomorrow and he said, well, it can. He said, but do you want to go across the number 10 and tell that their emergency report's not ready? Or should no. I? I was like, I'll be down in five minutes. So they're literally waiting to print out the report that he took across to Margaret Thatcher to the state of the ambulance strike on that day. So that was, um, yeah, it was quite, it was quite good because they threw you in very early on. Um, mm. You know, there's lots of, quite a lot of responsibility. It was good learning though, good learning. Yeah. So from there, moved into, um, after about doing that for two and a half years, I wanted to get into software, sort of had quite good learning and thought, and a job came up in Ringwood with a software company who were quite well known in their niche, in their field. Um, so a job came up as like a product manager. So I got got that and then moved to, started working in Bournemouth, in Ringwood. So you were in London at that time? Yeah, I was in- And then you were looking for jobs? Yeah, in okay. London. And the, the job, I mean, the software job came up in Computing Magazine. Um, hmm. And again, not, very, not many jobs came up with that sort of thing and they wanted a product manager and applied, um, lucky enough to get that. So then started commuting down to Ringwood from right. where I lived in Hampshire at the time. And, and how many years before you then started um, thinking of starting up your own business? Would you say? It was a bit of a while because we we then worked for a software company, had good learning there. Um, and then eventually we started developing some software for National and Provincial Building Society or Abbey National as they became. And that became my first startup. So we developed the software, but then Abbey National, who bought National and Provincial Building Society, didn't really want the software. So half of the company, we were all employed by Abbey National, but half of us basically did a management buyout okay. to take that software out of Abbey National. 
Mm-hmm. So I was on the directors that did that and did a, quite a lot of the business planning for that. And the, we got some VC from 3i. Um, so we raised over, at the time, looking back, it was quite a lot of money. So I think we raised 1.2 million. So that would have been in 1990, uh, when was that? 1994, uh, five, six, something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so at the time, it was quite a lot of money. So mm. yeah, that was my first startup, but it was a bit of a, a weird one. It wasn't a real start. I suppose it was a startup, but it, a team of eight of us left Abbey National with a mm. management buyout to form Adaptive as was. Yeah. And um, so we went from there. And how long did Adaptive, or were you with Adaptive? Uh, I was with Adaptive for two and a half, three years. So I left after having a bit of a disagreement with the rest of the, the team, the board, about strategy. I wanted to, we developed quite a lot of, uh, quite a good customer base in the States, and I thought our future was in America. Mm-hmm. And I went, went to the board and basically said, I think we need to invest in an American office. And... They didn't, and I thought, okay, I'm not going to carry on, and was a bit of an idiot and just left. So uh, <laughs> I left. Not regrets? With, uh, I, uh, no, not really. It was just yeah. one of those. I think you do things when you're younger. You know, you just go on and get, think. Actually, I'll just do this. So I was being, yeah. uh, being a bit obstinate, and I think their reasons were valid, but I didn't think they were. So I just um, left with another guy. Two of us left to start our own internet gaming company. So that was about 2000 and 2000. Oh, so you did that before Clicktools? Before Clicktools, yeah. So okay. we were started. We started a gaming company in the idea, and we launched it. We built the product out, and it was basically like fantasy football. But yeah. in, so we launched it around Euro two thousand, and the game was you you pick some players, you predict scores, and then you get points. Yeah. Um, we got Roy the Rovers as we got sort of licensing for Roy the Rovers. Roy so the we Rovers, using it. yeah, cool. Back in yeah. So we were licensing for him, and then we just couldn't get any traction. We couldn't. The, the internet bubble burst. Mm-hmm. So we raised half a million pound VC, um, and I don't know why we didn't take it. I can't remember if that was supposed to be half of the amount we wanted. We wanted a million pounds, yeah, because that's what you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't raise the half a million, and we ended up just closing it and just shutting it down because we we'd got a bit of traction during the Euro two thousand championships, mm-hmm. but because neither of us could code, we we needed the money. We couldn't do anything without money, so it was um, yeah, we stopped that. And then just sort of twiddled our thumbs for a couple of months before we met David, and then that started Click Tools. And was that I'm trying to think back? Was that the years before fantasy football actually came into the? Uh, yeah, there wasn't much around when we launched no, it in two thousand. There wasn't much. Mm. There wasn't much around. I mean, we were we, our first game was like a predictor, and we were trying to charge people for money um, to, to enter, and then everybody would win. But basically, yeah. win a big pot. Yeah. So it's like dream team type stuff, but mm-hmm. it's a lot more simple to start with. Um, yeah, there wasn't much around. So you were ahead of your time. Ahead of our time, yeah. Probably about <laughs> 10 years. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's part of the thing. If nobody wants it, it can be as ahead as you want if nobody wants the product. Can it? But yeah, it was, um, yeah, so we just stopped that and started ClickTools. And what was the um, idea behind ClickTools originally? Was that something that you had on your own or you made? No, I, I came late to the idea. So um, a guy called David Jackson, who, who co-founded ClickTools with, had an idea of providing... And the strap line was expert advice for the price of a lunch. So the idea was, was if you wanted to run a customer satisfaction survey or an employee satisfaction survey mm-hmm. or see how effective your business was, you would pay £5 per customer, per employee. You'd give us all the email addresses and we would send out a fixed survey and then give you the results. You'd get the results as soon as they came back. Yeah. Um, so the, the name was Click Tools 
was the name. Mm. Um, but what happened was we, we built a prototype, sold it to a few people, um, did a bit of consultancy to pay the bills. But then after a while, what was happening was that everybody wanted to change our fixed assessments and we hadn't built the product to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we ended up using the money from our first customers to rebuild the product, but build a, a survey tool so you could literally just build your own survey. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a pivot, if you yeah. use a trendy term of today. Um, and then, so yeah, we just changed it and became a survey platform. So we just went from from there. But the real change for us came when we when we did the Salesforce integration. So that was you know, we bootstrapped, so we didn't have any money. Yeah. Nick and I, the fellow co-founder, we didn't earn any money for two and a half years. So he left his flat. He came to share my house. And you were I, just doing some consulting to... He was doing some bills. consulting yeah. to, to basically pay for the development. We recruited right. a developer, mm-hmm. um, still living on beans and toast for 18 months, um, <laughs> built out the product and then started selling it. And then around 2004, we came across Salesforce, so Salesforce.com, the CRM system, they were just getting going um, and they announced a partner program and we thought that it would be really good if we could get the survey information like customer satisfaction into the CRM. Mm-hmm. So we built a prototype of that. Um, so we became one of Salesforce's first, I think we might have been their first UK partner, but we were one of the first 25 apps on their app exchange, which is like their partner yeah. marketplace. We went to... Um, Dreamforce, which was their big conference, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and went from there. And they're like now the world's biggest yeah. CRM system, almost popular CRM yeah, system. Biggest, yeah, biggest yeah. CRM system, probably biggest software as a service company in the world, I think, um, and have grown like mad. Yeah, absolutely unbelievable. Great. And, and so kind of rewind a bit, what were you, when you initially um, launched it and you got your first sales? Yeah. What was the difference between that and then getting integration in Salesforce? Was it like day and night? or? Uh, yeah, I mean, what we were doing at the time is we were searching for what what you call like product customer, product market fit. We were trying to build a software solution and we were struggling with different pricing models and sales models. So we get into very complex sales, but we weren't charging very much, mm-hmm. which made it very expensive to do. Yeah. So we did the Salesforce integration as a bit of a punt, really, to see whether we could get any any traction and I think for me personally I mean I think we hit something when we went to Dreamforce in California so we'd spent the money on getting the getting the exhibitor booth we went and the format was you'd have a booth guys would come along you'd demo and one of the first chaps who came along the American we showed him a demo and he said I'll buy it (laughs) he went what? he said yeah I'll buy it and he basically gave us a check Really? So he signed the order form and gave us a check in the same day. And at that point, we'd ne- I'd never experienced that with that software thing. So f- mm. for that point, it was like, hold on, this is... And it was night and day. It was we'd had long conversations. We'd never managed to close anything quickly in the UK. No way. Um, so to go across there and literally get this guy giving us a sign an order and give us a check. Can you remember what the check was now? Uh, I can remember, yeah. I mean, it was for, <laughs> it was for $2,000, $1,995 it was for, for a year's yeah. subscription for hmm. one person. Nice. So it wasn't a huge amount of money, but it, it, it was such a different, it was, it was as you say, night and day to what yeah. we'd been trying to do briefly. So from this there- This is how we do business in America. <laughs> yeah, we sort of, we just sort of doubled down on that and went, 
and went on that. We had a really good first show. We got up to like 100 customers really quickly doing a a lead, demoing to them and trial of two weeks and then selling or not. Yeah. So we managed to shorten the, the sales cycle really quite well. And from there, it was it, it just went a bit mad. And, and did you have to, to cope with the madness, did you have to open an office in America? We did, you yeah, we did eventually. Yeah. We... I mean, to start with, we had a Regis office with just a phone mm. number. So we set up <laughs> Clicktools Inc. Right. Um, we had a shared Regis office, which we never really went to, had an American phone number, and we were answering the American phone in the US, pretending to be in the US. So, to, I mean, for probably <laughs> a 14 months, probably a bit longer, there were two of us doing US support. So still just the two of you? No, there were four of us, four but only two of us used to do the support. Shift. Right. So, but... You know, we'd be work, starting work at 8 o'clock in the UK and then finishing at 2 o'clock the next morning because we'd been doing US support shifts. Yeah. So until we recruited the first... Because the first guys we recruited in the States were sales guys, not support guys, which is a bit stupid looking back. We probably should have recruited a support guy first. But, um, <laughs> and then a sales guy, yeah. <laughs> to save ourselves some sleep. But yeah, we, we were just doing US support and we, we didn't have a US employee for probably... Um, about 18 months after, two years after we'd started selling into the US. So we probably had 100, 150 customers by the time we had a, a US employee. Yeah. Yeah. It was tiring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tiring days. I bet it was. Good fun, though. Great yeah, fun. Looking Great back, fun. there's lots of things you could change, of course. Yeah, yeah but, absolutely. Um, and, and how did you, you scale that up in the end then? You say you, you took on somebody in the US. That What were the next steps? To- yeah, so it was just, I mean, being bootstrapped gave us some big challenges. So we didn't have... A huge amount of cash so we were always doing everything as quickly as we could but at an affordable level um, so the first recruit was one salesperson uh, in the US that came from a competitor who was struggling then we recruited another salesperson then um, a VP of sales who recruited another two so we were really fine trying to focus on the sales and marketing initially mm-hmm. and then eventually we opened an office in Phoenix Arizona uh, yeah. in Phoenix, Arizona. So, and just sort of grew from there. It was just we grew it as quickly as we could with the cash that we had, which was, you know, we we were never overly cash rich because of bootstrapping. So, mm. it gives a few challenges, but you just do it as quickly as you as you can to try and get rid of the the pain and ease the ease the growth really. Yeah, and then how many years till you you so you exited the business in two thousand and fourteen? So was that uh, yeah, 10, 11 years? 14, yeah, uh, yeah. From start to finish, it was fourteen years. But fourteen probably, years. Okay. Yeah, to start to finish, but properly, we'd probably really been going nine. I think nine, ten years. Before, really, I mean, the first three years don't really count. I don't think. But yeah, yeah. But you still owned most of that company because you hadn't because you bootstrapped it. Yeah, we bootstrapped yeah. it. I mean, we had two. We had two liquidity. Two, two events of two acquisitions through. Really. The first one, I mean, we, it, it's weird when you grow a company, you have so many people asking you about, um, our, you know, we're interested in buying you and then you get a lot of tire kickers because mm. we were doing quite well in the Salesforce community so we're quite, we're well known in that in that field. And you weren't actively looking? No, you weren't, just, no, like you weren't say, actively looking. Tires. So we had conversations with Salesforce. So Salesforce said they were interested but I think they said that to everybody that was on the app exchange at the time. Yeah. We had conversations with a design agency, a marketing agency, another software company in Finland. Um, and then one day, David Jack, we, we had a phone call from SurveyMonkey um, and said, I'd like to meet you and chat about ClickTools. So our ears pricked up. <laughs> and David and I flew to New York, uh, met Dave Goldberg, 
who basically said, I'd like to buy Clickton's. Hmm. And we sort of fell off the chair. Um, <laughs> so, can we see the check now? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we should have done that, actually. Uh, <laughs> and we had a chat, and they were, Survey Monkey uh, have been hugely successful and sort of invented the freemium software model. Yeah. Uh, and had grown massively and were, now, and were owned at that time by, a, well, still are owned by a private equity firm. So we're oh, looking okay. to really scale, but they were always very consumer, consumer based, and they didn't have much enterprise knowledge. So we were very enterprising. We were wanting to go down a more of a consumer route. Yeah. They wanted to learn from us in terms of enterprise stuff. So it seemed like a really good, mm. good fit. Yeah. So, but they ended up taking a minority stake, um, and so that was the first one, and then. That, that happened and and that became quite tough because I think we were a little bit inexperienced and we were waiting for them to come and tell us what to do. Yeah. And they didn't. <laughs> they just sort of left us on our own. And then right. and they were probably waiting for us to tell mm. them what we wanted to do. And we we just ended up talking to each other, but not much <laughs> not much actually happening. And um only looking back, that was one of the things that we you know, we we'd do definitely I'd do differently next time. Yeah. Um so after about two and a half years, a couple of years of that, then David got another phone call from somebody at a company called Calidus, who did a lot of work with Salesforce. Um, so they're like a, they're listed on Nasdaq, and they wanted to buy us, and so they bought out SurveyMonkey and bought the whole company. Oh, they so, bought out yeah, so they bought oh, okay. out SurveyMonkey and, and bought 100 percent of ClickTools. Yeah, so that was in around 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did six months there, six months stayed at Clicktools for six months and then and then left. Right off into the sunset. And right off into the sunset, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hobbled. Remote, yeah. And and is it something, um, just having this conversation with, with Richard Reed the other week, he puts it out there, you know, we got given north of five hundred million by Coca Cola. I wasn't anywhere near that. No, no, no. no, no. no. I, wish I, I was, was gonna say, is it something that's enabled you to transition into what you're doing now comfortably rather than Yeah. Yeah, it you know, certainly takes a lot of fear off. Yeah, I mean, it was put it this way: it was it was enough for us to not have to worry about things for a long time. Yeah, um, it wasn't quite up to Richard Reed's level this time. Maybe next time for Richard Reed's level. Yeah, um, but we'd got to the point. I think we, we didn't probably make as much on the valuation as we could. Could we'd sort of started to stutter a little bit? I think one of the challenges with bootstrapping is we. I personally think we struggle to invest enough money to really grow the business. So we couldn't go out and hire. 10 sales guys or right. okay. a team of 10 sales guys and three SDRs, like sales development reps mm. and a team of four marketers. We yeah. were sort of stuck within our own model and we weren't generating cash quickly enough to really grow it. Mm. So our growth had, had halted. It hadn't, excuse me, it hadn't stopped. It was just slowing down a little bit. Yeah. So I think at the time we had conversations about whether we could have gone and raised some VC Um which in hindsight I think I'd have preferred to do, but there just wasn't the appetite to do it. And we were, oh, well, I, I was, excuse I was knackered. <laughs> if I, after doing it for that long yeah. and bootstrapping, it's really tight. It's it's tough. You yeah. know, you learn, I get, went from being a product manager to being a sales and marketing director. So I'd had, you know, I went to being a salesman to running a, and growing a sales team and growing a marketing team. And I, mm. I was a tech guy with a bit of product knowledge. Yeah. And I, you have to learn so much so quickly. Um, and then you're all learning how to employ people, grow the business. Yeah, We were just worn out. 
and in that time, so you I think got married, had children, and yeah, got, got married, had going kids. on as well. Yeah, so not getting sleepless <laughs> nights. Going to say if you're knackered anyway. Yeah, chuck and, that in the mix. Yeah, that didn't help. And so going, you know, <laughs> I was spending, I was going to the weeks, I was going to the states for two weeks, coming back for a week, going back to the states for two weeks, right. coming back for three weeks, going to the states for a month, coming back for two weeks, and it was just wow. like literally non-stop. Brutal. Yeah. And as you know, you know when. You, Everybody says, "Oh, it must be really glamorous," but it doesn't <laughs> matter how much you spent on a hotel. Every yeah. hotel room is exactly the same after yeah. you do it for a few times. Yeah, it's a bed. Yeah, exactly. You just want to go home. You're there for a limited time. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was great acquisition. Mm. I mean, it gave us gave me the opportunity to take a bit of time off. Um, you know, not have the the pressure of of things. So yeah, it, it was great. Absolutely great. And did you look to get involved in something else initially, or because I know you started working um, or helping as a mentor for both Virgin Startup and Barclays? Yeah, origi- well. originally I didn't want to do anything, mm. but then after about nine months, my brain—I thought my brain was just starting to turn to absolute mush—and thought if I carry on like this, I'm, I'm mm. going to turn into a something I don't know so I, I felt the need to go and do something and then I remember when I started a software when we started the software company in Bournemouth 20 years ago there was no help mm. you know I joined Business Link as it was then spoke yeah. to Business Link and I think I spoke to a guy who came along and I think he was a butcher and I was talking to him about a software company I was like what's that then I was like oh, oh, okay so and there was just nobody around yeah. um, and we got to, got to know a few people so Exchequer were around at the time so got to know them, so they sold to Iris, I think. Um, so I remember thinking I'd really like to get involved with the startup community to try and help people who are starting a software company. Mm. So that's when I met, I, I inquired about being Virgin Mentor, mm. so I met you through that. Um, and I also do a bit of mentoring with, with Barclays. Um, so that's where that started, was to really try and help the Bournemouth community startups, because a lot of them are out. Yeah. It's not much advice. And there seems so much more around now than even seven, eight years ago. Uh, like yeah. Say, lot, I remember the business link days and it was like, here's a leaflet. Yeah. That, that's and it, it doesn't matter if you're 15 or 50 or whether it was software or like a butcher's, it's yeah, the same leaflet. You've got the same leaflet, absolutely. <laughs> here's your sales and marketing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, there are a lot more around now um, and a lot more people who aren't in software who want to start a software company or start an app company. Mm. Um, so yeah, I just really wanted to try and help them a little bit if I could. And based on your experience and um, people that you've you've met so far, what do you think you can you can offer, or what have you been able to help people with? I think there are several things actually. I think the the thing for a software company is I I think you can teach probably around thirty percent of what you do. So there's a process that you go through. You know, you understand what your product's going to do. You figure out who your customers are, and you can teach elements of that. Mm. So um, that's with the with the startup school that we that we're doing with with Virgin Startups, that's that's trying to do that. But I think there are two types of people that I generally come across. Mm. So the first group are people who don't have any software or IT knowledge, who want to start an app, but don't know what to do. So, and I've seen situations where unfortunately they've spent a huge amount of their hard work, hard earned savings, mm. whether it be. 30,000, 40,000, 60,000. I mean, one guy, 90,000 pounds. 90. Yeah, getting an app built that he didn't have a clue what he was supposed to be building, who he was building it for, why he was building it. He'd just gone to an agency and they'd basically worked with him to develop an app and there's no way in the world it was going to actually go anywhere. So I think for those people, it's around understanding the process 
and mm. figuring out what you want to build is very different from what you need to build to start with. You know, you don't need to build mm. the whole product. You need to build a small amount, the minimum you can, and test that, see if it works. Yeah. Find some customers and then grow. But don't spend ninety thousand pounds building something before you even wow. speak to a customer. No. So that's the one element. So if I can save one person. Forty thousand pounds, then I think that's that's worthwhile. Absolutely, yeah. And then the second element is gen- generally it's more technical people, coders, developers, who don't have a clue about sales and marketing. So they'll generally think, "I'll build an app," but then get a bit worried why they haven't had a million downloads in the last month. Mm. So there's a they, they're exceptionally talented, can build an app. Yeah, but don't necessarily understand that you have to think about who the customer is, and they don't understand the concept of a funnel. Mm. So that you know, if a thousand people will look at your app, then probably ten will download it and one will buy, yeah. or two will buy. So to get to two thousand customers, you're going to have to convince two two hundred thousand people to look at your app, yeah. and that's sort of metrics. That you know, whether that's maybe not the exact numbers, but the principle applies. Mm. So you've still got to do all the sales and marketing to get to that number and if you don't understand why you're building your product then it's the same sort of problem so it generally falls into those two groups really and do you think um sort of going back to the, the course because you've, you've run one so far yeah one run so far and you're looking yeah. to run another one yeah in uh, it's mid 18th november i think it is yeah i think you're right um yeah. and do you think both those groups of people fit into that yeah absolutely court, you know? yeah. again it's back to both. you know people like so i was fortunate enough when i was at click tools to spend um, a period in a salesforce.com incubator and a lot of what you teach uh, is the same there and people like Y Combinator um, teach exactly the same thing and it, it's the same principles you know it's about what your product is who you're selling it to what market you're building it into how you build out your product what funnel is um, how you scale a team and again as I mentioned you can't teach all of it but hopefully you can teach people 30 to 40 percent enough to help them avoid any obvious pitfalls at least give them a healthy start yeah because it's tough you know it's not easy to raise money and it's to sort of be a bit realistic about some of those expectations you know it is one in a thousand companies raise money for their software company or app it's it's not one every five no no it's one in a thousand and then five out of seven of them will fail yeah. So it's about trying to be a bit realistic about the what you're putting yourselves in for, what you're lending yourself in for. Cool. And how can people find out about um, the startup school that you're, you're running? So you can go to the Eventbrite, Eventbrite page under VSU, and I think it's 19th, uh, 18th of November. And it's just £35 for four hours, and limited audience, so about 10 people going through the same course. Perfect. Okay, so sort of hands-on stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Very practical, pragmatic advice. No, no lecturing. Okay, and yeah. um, and what are you up to at the moment? Any any other future plans? Yeah. Uh, so I, my other other time spent on something called iKulu, which is an app to help small businesses. That's due to be launched in about a month, and that basically takes metrics from apps that you use to run your business, whether it be Twitter, Instagram, Zero, LinkedIn, Facebook, and give you metrics and insights as to how your business is performing. So perfect for startups, funny. Perfect for startups, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and where can they find out about that in, in a month's time? Um, so is... on, yeah, so go to www.iculu.com and there's a link there. You can sign up for the pre-release, the preview release, which is coming in about about a month. Perfect. There's not much information there, but if yeah. you want more, just email me at andrew at iculu.com. 
Perfect. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Alex. So a couple of things that stand out from speaking to Andrew is firstly, balancing what you need compared to what you actually want. Um, what's your MVP? What's your minimum viable product? What do you need to do um, based on what you need compared to what you actually want? Because that's going to be a lot less cost-wise for you um, and means you can test it and then go and improve it and perhaps spend some more money on it. So think of your MVP, what you actually need, balance against what you want. Secondly, giving back, um, which Andrew's doing a lot of both as a mentor and also as a teacher, a coach through his um, helping the startup community through his work as a Virgin and Barclays mentor and also now teaching by setting up a startup school course designed around building an app. So what's there that you could do to to give back to your community to to add value? Um, Have a think about that. And before moving on to the next section, I'd like to draw your attention to our live events because if you love these podcasts, then you'll love seeing and hearing some of our entrepreneurs in the flesh. So we've got events coming up in Bournemouth on October the 11th. So you can go to Eventbrite and check that out with Mark Cribb from the Urban Guild and Jonathan Davis from the Training Room. On the 17th, we've got Jamie Lang and Ed Williams from Candy Kittens. And on the 19th of October, we're in Brighton, where we've got Nick Coleman from The Snaffling Pig. And we've also got Rupert Holloway from Conquer Spirit. So just go to Eventbrite, check on the events in Bournemouth and Brighton. We've got a couple of great ones coming your way. And I'd love to connect with you personally. Please... um, Check me out at Alex Chisnell. Um, Twitter is the most obvious place you can find me. Likewise, um, Facebook and LinkedIn as well. Love to hook up with you. And I'd love to know what's the one thing that you'd like to know about starting or scaling a business. Tell me what is your one thing I'd love to know. Um, I think that the key things that I've learned uh, through having a business is probably everyone's going to tell you that you can't do something and that doesn't mean that that's true. Um, I think um, you only really succeed if you can if you can do things that other people think that aren't possible. And so when people tell you that you won't be able to do it, just just go with what you feel. You know, if you, if you feel you can do it, then then you can. Next up is Isaac Bartlett Copeland, who started cooking professionally, aged just 16 in fine dining and luxury hotel restaurants in Sussex. Isaac's passion to learn more about food led him to London to further his training and experience working in a series of Michelin star restaurants. Having always wanted to own his own restaurant, he then moved back to Brighton, launched a pop-up aged just 22, which has now evolved into Isaac at his own Brighton-based restaurant. I caught up with him to find out how he did it. My name's uh, Isaac Bartlett Copeland, um, and I've got a restaurant in the uh, North Lane uh, in Brighton. Um, and we, uh, we do a, a seasonal tasting menu using um, ingredients from all over the South Coast. Um, and our, our main kind of concept is that we, we want to be a, like a really local restaurant. So everything we serve is from uh, around the Sussex and South Coast area. Um, absolutely everything we do is even including the wines um, and all of the ingredients and everything like that. Cool. And how long have you been going for? 
Um, so we've been we've been going for just over uh, two years, um, but we we started off as a pop up, um, and we've just hit uh, one year of uh, opening as a, a full time restaurant. Awesome! Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks very much. Has it been a, has it been an easy journey? Um, no, not <laughs> not, not at all. <laughs> um, but um, but it's definitely been uh, a massive experience and incredibly fun uh incredibly challenging um but you know definitely the best thing i've ever done <laughs> awesome and and what was the transition like going from a pop up to to a restaurant so i'm i'm assuming a lot more services for for a start yeah um it wasn't actually too difficult because obviously um uh me and all of the team are from a restaurant background um so it's not it wasn't really alien to us it was quite hard to to lose all of that development time to going into just constantly um, feeding the restaurant, you know, in terms of like, um, yeah, basically. Um, yeah. Okay. And um, how, how long did you have the pop-up before you, you, you transitioned to, uh, to a restaurant? Uh, so we were open, I think about one and a half years. Um, and then, we just we just decided it was it was time really. Uh, we wanted to kind of expand, um, and because initially with the pop up we were doing every Friday and Saturday evening, um, and we thought the the most sensible way to expand would be to do um, actually go down in covers so we can so we could get the quality of the food higher, mm-hmm. but at the same time doing a lot more services so that we were expanding the business in in that way really. And has the concept changed massively from when you were a pop-up to, to, to being a restaurant? Um, the concept hasn't changed at all. We've always had the same kind of mission, the same kind of ideas, um, but it's definitely developed a lot along the way um, and it's kind of created a, a lot more of a defined identity, I'd say, since since we first opened. Mm-hmm. And, and where did the the concept come from originally? Just your experience and and sampling other food and drink establishments uh, along the way. Yeah, I think I think uh, the main kind of idea was that I wanted to create uh, like a local restaurant where you could go to that restaurant and really experience the flavors and the ingredients from around the area. Because I, I've eaten at a, a lot of restaurants. It's like you know, uh, one of my favorite things to do is eating out. Um, and it gives me a lot of ideas for 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 my restaurant. Um, and even even before I had the restaurant, I always knew I was going to have a restaurant. Um, and so it kind of developed me as a chef as well to eat uh, and and be on the other side of it. Um, you really kind of get a grasp of what the customer kind of wants mm-hmm. uh, or what they're kind of thinking and what affects the customer in comparison to like your views of what you should be doing as a chef kind of thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've eaten a lot of places and I really noticed that everywhere you go, generally everywhere has the same kind of menu, the same, the same wines on the menu, the same kind of style of cooking. Um, and I, I really thought that it'd be really cool to just develop a local restaurant where, um, people can come there and eat ingredients that they, they wouldn't get anywhere else because they're specific to that area. Mm. Um, you know, with the wines, um, and the veg and the meat and everything, um, and really to to define the identity of the restaurant based around the location, really. And, and how would you describe the the type of food you cook then, for example? Um, I think it's 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 modern British. I would say um, it's quite quite rustic, 
um, very much based on flavour um, is the key. Um, and uh, quite simple. Uh, it's not too complicated. Um, but at the same time, quite refined in terms of uh, the techniques that we use and and the kind of flavours on the plate as well. Mm, awesome. Um, and having personally just been to um, a restaurant called the pig um of which there are uh, about four or five now in the in the southwest and their food i can't remember the exact mileage but um they again they, they try to source it all in within dorset where, where we're based within uh, i think like 25 30 mile radius um how about yourself is that a s- relatively similar concept but the fact that nobody's doing it in, in in brighton i think so i mean we don't really restrict ourselves to any kind of um limits of how how far we want everything to come from okay it's just more that we want everything to feed the idea that it it's it's all about local um and the, the south coast really yeah um and we, we we introduced the mileage on the back of the menu so uh on the on the front of the menu you obviously have the menu and then on the back it tells you all the ingredients that are used in the menu and exactly where they're from mm-hmm. and i think it was because when we started we 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 kind of we had the concept and we were we were explaining that to the customers and and it was all about local but then occasionally there would be things from a little bit further afield um depending on depending on kind of the circumstance or the quality of whatever it is and then we decided to make it a lot more transparent so um so that's where the kind of putting the mileage on the menu came from um and it's not necessarily to to that we're like really quite um, strict about about the distance. It's more just about the transparency of, okay. of the customer being able to see where the ingredients has come from, really. Yeah, okay, no, totally understand that. And um, I understand that the wine menu is purely English or British-based as well. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, so absolutely everything uh, on our drinks menu is, is from Britain. Um, we've got, obviously, the whiskies from Scotland and places like that, but uh, generally uh all of the wines are from sussex and then um pretty much everything else is as well and we we have some incredible wines in sussex and i i think people don't really uh don't really know about it yet and it's quite it's quite a new thing um and i think people are quite kind of stuck in that kind of thought that britain doesn't make good wine um i think that's kind of changing especially since the the sparkling wine the sussex sparkling wine's been getting a lot of publicity really and that's been getting people thinking that okay yeah maybe we can actually make uh, quite nice wine in England, but it's mainly around the kind of s- the sparkling. Um, but also um, the the white and reds are actually uh, really coming up in quality. Even even in the time that we've opened the restaurant, um, there's there's some fantastic wines from Sussex, uh, and I think it's great to to kind of um, showcase them on the menu, really. Um, and also, I think I think that I really wanted to have a restaurant where you you go out and you have an experience rather than just going out to eat something and i think delivering a bit of a different concept and a different idea and using wines that people have never really tried before but actually just on their doorstep um is something we really wanted to do and i think uh, i think that really delivers a lot in terms of uh, an ad to the experience that people get when they eat with us and is the feedback largely being positive um, in that regard? Only in in a similar vein, I was chatting to um, a chap called Mark Cribb, who owns um, 
two, three, four drink, uh, eating, drinking establishments down down here on the south coast. And um, the latest place he opened, they just had uh, local craft ales, so it was just all around from Dorset. And he said it only took you know one person coming in saying, "Mate, all I want is a Foster's. What, what's all this local rubbish?" And it was just like, it's the complete opposite of what we're trying to create here, you know. But hopefully those people in the minority and interested to know, is it, has it been a similar experience with regards to the wine? Uh, I think a little bit. Definitely when we started out, um, we had a lot of people kind of, um, uh, kind of saying, you know, you know, this wine's no good or like, what, you know, why would you use wine from England? Um, but I think, I think as, as we've developed as a restaurant, People have more confidence in in us, and I think that that gives us the ability to kind of say try this, and they'll they'll take that in a. I think I think a lot of whether people whether people enjoy something is perception, and and as as we built up trust and reputation in in the kind of Brighton area, I think people's people are a lot more open minded to it, um, and and now when they come in. Uh, definitely in comparison to when we opened, we don't really have anyone kind of uh, thinking that it's a negative anymore, which is really nice. Um, and yeah, it seems to be working really well, actually. Great. And you mentioned earlier that you 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 always thought that you'd open a restaurant. How long have you kind of harboured those, those ambitions? Um. Well, I think uh, from from when I from when I uh, first wanted to be, I mean, I, to be honest, I can't remember a time I didn't I didn't want to be a chef. But I think I've always wanted to have my own restaurant, uh, and definitely since I started cooking, uh, and since I went to college when I was sixteen, um, at that point I was always planning to, to have my own restaurant. Um, but obviously, the path of doing that, I would have to kind of learn the craft first, mm. um, and then as I as I was kind of going out there and working for different people i've always slowly kind of planned what i was going to do um and then eventually um it kind of got to the point where i felt like i was ready uh and i felt like it was time to take the the step and i, I just i just went for it really and was the the pop-up trying to prove that they were the, the demand was out there for what you wanted to do was that just a way a, a more low-cost way that a lot more people are now embracing to actually get their their foot in the door, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when when we started out, um, I didn't have like any money at all, really. Uh, just a bit of money that I'd saved along the way, um, and so we we really were just like making do. And I think it was it was quite obvious that we were never going to be able to set up a, a full time restaurant initially because the amount of money you need for that is just. Uh, crazy really mm. um, and so we've just built it from the ground up uh, like when we when we started the pop-up um, it was literally just like a, a converted office that we put a few tables in and uh, a makeshift uh, kitchen in the corner and then from there we've just built it and built it and built it and all the money that's come into the business we've just put back into it um, and just to keep evolving it really. I was going to say, so to have have you managed to fund it? Um, is it all all come from yourself to start with? You haven't had to to go and get uh, get a loan or get get investors into the business because yeah, having funded a number of different restaurants through um, with Virgin Startup funding, it's it's normally six figures rather than five figures to to, to get something, isn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, well, well, yeah, no, it was it's it's all been uh, from from money that I'd saved and then and then 
earned back through doing the pop-ups initially and then we've just kept going kept the same concept of of whatever we make we put back in and then every kind of every six months we're we're vastly kind of um better than we were before and the equipment we have is is a lot better Mm. um i think yeah and i think we've kind of reached a point now where we're not sure if we if we want to carry on um doing it by ourselves or maybe like look at uh investors to kind of um to take it forward uh but i'm not really sure at the moment i think we're at kind of a bit of a pivotal point where um we've got the restaurant to uh quite a high level that we're happy with but we we kind of want to take it to to the kind of national stage really and we're not sure if 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 doing that by ourselves is the right thing to do or if we should get someone involved i'm not really sure we're kind of working that at the moment Okay. And do you have any, any mentors that have helped you along the the journey? Uh, yeah, I think to be honest, uh, my mum's helped me quite a lot. Um, she's had quite a few businesses in the past. Um, and so she gives me a bit of, uh, advice here and there. Um, and then, uh, a lot of different chefs that I've worked with kind of, um, I've had a lot of, uh, really great, uh, people that I've worked with that have taught me a lot, uh, along the way as well. Awesome. And, and have you built the team um, as you've gone along as well? Uh, and has it been the same team that started with the with a pop up with you, or did you have to re- recruit again? Um, no, we. I kind of um, we've got about half of the people that are with us at the moment were right from the beginning, but it, it's grown quite organically. Um, I don't really generally recruit people. I, I wait until the people come to me because um, I think that's always a, a more effective way of. Um, of reassuring that they're going to want to be a part of the business long term, um, and uh, and the team's a really important uh, thing to me. I, I put a lot of work into managing the team, making sure that everyone gets exactly what they want out of it, um, and helping everyone develop as much as I can. Really, awesome. And how do you find the the balance yourself? Because you're, you're obviously an entrepreneur, having set up the restaurant yourself and being a business owner, and then. Um, I'm assuming you you cook most of the food yourself, if not all of the food as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's is uh, <laughs> is it's, it's definitely not the easiest thing I've done. I think I think uh, you just have to. I think just constantly pushing forward and doing what you can, uh, and then it just all seems to come together. Really. <laughs> any um, any particular challenges if if you were Starting up again now, if you were somebody listening to this podcast who is thinking of setting up a, a food or drink establishment, that um, any advice that you could offer from from the challenges that you've faced over the last two or three years? Um, I think that the key things that I've learned uh, through having a business is probably everyone's going to tell you that you can't do something. And that doesn't mean that that's true. Um, I think... Um, you only really succeed if you can if you can do things that other people think that aren't possible. And so when people tell you that you won't be able to do it, just just go with what you feel. You know, if you, if you feel you can do it, then then you can. Um, and uh, and um, I don't know, really. Yeah, I think that's that's my main kind of uh, that's motto, good advice. Really. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good advice. And um, what's what's the the big vision for yourself? How how far do you think you can you can take this? Obviously, yeah, you're only a couple of years into the journey, but um, the sky's the limit, surely. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, we're we're a really uh, ambitious team. Uh, everyone in the team is is really young, um, which I think I think has its drawbacks. But at the same time, it has a lot of positives, really, because everyone's sometimes a little bit of naivety goes a long way when you're when you're trying to reach quite ambitious goals. Um, but I don't know, really. I mean, it's it's been an incredible journey, and uh, we just want to keep going uh, and see where it takes us, really. Yeah, and um, as I understand, you, you, you're Brighton originally, but you did uh, some of your training up in London. So is there uh, an aim to, uh, to, to to head back up to London at some point in the future? Oh, no, I, I think uh, Brighton is definitely uh, the place I want to be. Uh, and in terms, having a business in Brighton is, is such a great place to have a business. People are so open-minded, um, and I think it's – it's not i mean not that there isn't competition but i think between businesses in brighton um there's a lot more of a kind of family culture rather than a kind of dog eat dog kind of like vibe that i think that i would that you'd probably get in london really yeah yeah no perfectly said and um really enjoy speaking to you thank you so much for your time and uh, i wish you all the very best for the future all right thanks very much alex it's great to speak to you So a couple of takeaways from my interview with uh, Isaac. Um, first up, I think making yourself stand out from the crowd might sound obvious, but um, as Isaac said, how many restaurants do you know, you know, in, in his industry, for example, that have very, very similar menus? So trying to make you stand out from the crowd, um, niche of niche from, from his point of view, all local food and drink um, is sourced locally from Sussex. Um, yes, a lot of restaurants might have local food but to also cover the the wine aspect was was pretty brave um given the reputation of english wines like you said sparkling wine has a very good reputation in this country um not everybody knows about a lot of the other wines so making yourself stand out by being brave um such as what isaac has done there um very good i like that indeed um and also Proving demand, um, you know, you don't have to go all in. Um, kind of harks back to, to last week's podcast with uh, MYO, Make Your Own. Again, starting up with a pop-up, proving demand, proving that there's people out there who want to buy your product or service um, and building from the ground up. So from that pop-up, has then morphed into his own restaurant here and he's reinvesting the profits into growing the staff, growing the menu, growing the number of services that they do. So it's a, it's a great way to organically build the business. If you'd like the opportunity to attend one of our live events with some of the world's leading entrepreneurs, just go to startupu.co.uk and click on the events calendar. That's startupu with the letter U. From there, you'll be able to see what live events we've got coming up and book a ticket from as little as £5, which includes a complimentary drink and the opportunity to network with like-minded entrepreneurs. Hope to see you soon. If you're an entrepreneur looking for funding, mentoring or support, go to startupu.co.uk. And if you'd like to share your startup story, we'd love to hear from you. Just go to the contact page on startupu.co.uk and we'll be in touch. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and I'd love it if you left me a review of the show. 
To connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at Alex Chisnell. Until the next show, remember, don't wait. The time will never be just right. Action always beats intention. This show is brought to you by RocketSpark, who make it easy for anyone to build a great-looking website. Each month, RocketSpark offer one lucky listener the opportunity to get a website absolutely free for the next six months to do some in-market testing of a new idea. Just go to rocketspark.com slash screw it, just do it to enter. Thank you.